And I would invite you to turn in your copies of God's Word, if you have a Bible with you today, to Titus chapter 1, although the words will be on the screen. Titus chapter 1. Uh, you may have noticed that in uh, our treatment of Titus, um, we are going much slower than we did through John. We, we might cover an entire chapter of John in two sermons. A letter like Titus, which is an epistle, uh, it's appropriate to slow down uh, because of the nature of the letter, what, uh, what folks call the genre. Uh, and so we're not looking at a story that's being told as in John's gospel. We are instead now looking at teaching, at uh, something that one person told to another that was supposed to be a blueprint for a church. And as a result, now we receive, even in the 21st century, we receive this letter as a blueprint for our church. Uh, last week, I just confessed to you the awkwardness that I feel in dealing with these passages. We are still today in the qualifications for elder, which is just another word for pastor. We're looking at the qualifications for elder. We see in the New Testament elders typically existed in a plurality, which means that there was not just one. There were many. Some were paid. Many uh, had uh, day jobs, and they served as lay pastors. Uh, many times in each church, one person or just a, a handful of these of this larger group would be entrusted with the teaching of the church. Uh, but today, we are looking at some of the specific qualifications and, uh, and, and what is the elder or the pastor to be. I mentioned to you last week how awkward or uncomfortable this is for me because I understand that I occupy this role. And so as I personally read through the qualifications, I see areas where maybe I might feel like I'm doing a little better and other areas where maybe I feel like I'm, I could do, I could do uh, much better. Uh, but still, the reason that we read this and the reason that we highlight it before our people is because it is the Word of God. And so as we preach uh, consecutively in an expository fashion through the Word of God, we don't seek to ignore uh, the things, um, uh, I, I don't seek to, make, to ignore the things that I feel might make you uncomfortable and then it would be inappropriate for me to ignore the things that would make me uncomfortable. So trying to be an equal opportunity preacher here. Um, I almost entitled this sermon, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Um, I am not uh, the first person who has thought of a title for a, uh, a sermon or a speech by that name. Don't just do something, stand there. When we think about pastors or when we think about elders, when we honestly just think about what is a Christian, we might think in terms of what they do. What Titus is here reminding us of is that a Christian and especially a pastor or an elder or someone in leadership, is known by who they are, by character qualifications, by where they stand and not just simply what they do or the functions that they carry out. Don't just do something, stand there. I have in my mind a memory from maybe one of these Dateline NBC shows. You ever see those that come on at night? And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the show is like an hour long. And if you, 
if you jump in in the last 15 minutes, you'll catch the entire thing because it seems like the first 45 minutes is them just repeating the same details over and over again and then putting speculations into your mind and, and building suspense. And then finally, the last 15 minutes is the part that, that you really need. But anyway, I remember one of these, uh, one of these stories or one of these documentaries about a, a crime or a person who had committed crime. I can't really place it, uh, but this young man... Uh, had been involved really kind of neck deep in a life of waywardness and a life of uh, drug use and even violence or, or things like that. And it had all caught up to him because now he was in court and it was time for him to be sentenced. This is just the only part of the show that I remember in my mind. And then in front of the judge there before sentencing, he was allowed to make a statement and the statement that he made stuck with me. It went something like this. He said, I know that one of the charges against me is possession of drugs. And I am guilty. But there's a clarification I need to make. I never possessed drugs as much as they possessed me. You know. And that, that phrase, that turn of phrase, it was so, I don't know, so um, deeply felt, it stayed with me, it paints a picture of how certain things can so take control of our lives that they begin to exercise a mastery over us. They begin to control us, master us, and take us where they want us to go. And so what, what I hope to highlight today is we're looking again to the specific qualifications for elder or for pastor is this, is that these are simply a listing of the fruit that every Christian should be able to experience because the gospel is a gospel of change, right? So I said this, I made reference to this twice last week. There's nothing special about this list. It's not as if the, the, the varsity Christians need to be concerned with things like this and, and everyone else can really kind of give it short shrift. Really what we are seeing here is is the outworking of what happens in a believer when the gospel takes mastery over us. Who has mastered you? We can know who has mastered us by the fruit that our life produces. Our good works do not save us. That would be getting the cart before the horse. But those who have been converted to God can expect to not be perfect, but to experience a life of ongoing change, ongoing sharpening, ongoing growth. In this way, we demonstrate who our master is. If we are mastered by self or by desire or by some other bad master, we can expect to see bitter fruit produced, a reluctance to, to, to repent. Be marked by all of those things that we mentioned last week from Titus chapter 3 that, that come before conversion. Envy and hateful and hating one another, Titus chapter 3 says. In Ephesians 2, we were slaves to various lusts and pleasures. Today we see these qualifications, and I'm going to ask you to read them uh, together with me. We'll begin in verse 5. 
just to get back to the beginning of the sentence. This is Paul speaking to younger pastor, younger elder type, uh, a man named Titus that he has left on the island of Crete, and he writes this letter back to him to encourage him about how to set up the churches that are under his care. This is why I left you in Crete, verse 5, Paul says to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, and we said last week that's kind of the umbrella that, that casts a shadow over all of the other little specific points that he's about to raise. If anyone is above reproach, comma, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, we, we treated those things, the, the elder and his family, uh, last Sunday night. So if you were not here, if you didn't catch that, it is up on our podcast. You can go back and review. That was really kind of part B to the sermon that you heard last Sunday morning. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent for greedy gain. So these are the negative qualifications. He must not be these things. He must be running away from these things. And I've entitled this sermon, Positives and Negatives. These were the negative, the run away from these things. But of course, life is not very fun when all you're trying to do is run away from something. We, we, we have something before us. Christ has set before us something to run toward. We have a goal. We have an end in mind, a telos. Verse 8, but he must be these, these things, the positive qualifications, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray together. Lord, I am deeply aware of my own insufficiency, and I am aware of the ways that I struggle relative to this list. So I want to stand before these people that you have entrusted to me and the care of our church. And I want to confess to you, Lord, that the only righteousness, the only goodness that I have comes from the fountain that you provided at the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, I ask you to help me to see fruit born out by what you did in me at the cross. I pray that I and that we as a church would not err toward the ditch of legalism, thinking that we are somehow saved by following the rules. I pray that we would also not err toward the ditch of license, believing that somehow in an anti-gospel, twisted way that since Jesus has paid for our sins, how we live doesn't matter. 
I pray instead that we would walk the Matthew 7 narrow road of the gospel. That we would live out of gratitude for what you have done in us. And as a result, we would ask you, God, would you bring fruit from my life? Lord, I pray that today, the words that I speak would come with the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that when folks leave today, they would not think, what a good sermon, or what great music, or what a warm fellowship. And, and as, as nice as those things are to have, I pray that when we leave today, we would be able to say that we met with God in his word. Would you do that among us, Lord? Just send your Holy Spirit so that the things that I say would come equipped with a power that is not mine and is not ours. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, what follows might seem like really kind of choppy or stutter steps, but I'm just going to have to treat these, um, these qualifications as best I know how. And, and we're going to go down through them. The first are, of course, the negative qualifications. And, and they begin uh, here in verse 7. The Bible says this for the negative qualifications, what, a, what an overseer must not be. And, of course, keeping in the back of our mind what we are all as Christians to expect God to see, uh, to, to see God working in us progressively, little by little, as we walk with him day by day. Verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. Now, I don't think it would be useful for me to try to explain to you what arrogance is, I think we all have a fair, fairly good definition of, in our mind. Uh, maybe there's an example in your mind of someone that you know who is notoriously arrogant. And in view of this uh, qualification, I sure hope that the person that popped into your mind is not me. Um, but I think it would be helpful if we looked to consider this. In a believer, and particularly in a pastor, what would be the chief evidence of arrogance, spiritually speaking? What would be the chief evidence of arrogance, spiritually speaking, for a Christian and especially for a believer, for, for a pastor? I think it would look like this. I think it would look like having God's word saying with our mouth that yes, I believe the Bible, but then evaluating the Bible, weighing it out, and concluding you know, I think I know better on these one or two points. That is the pinnacle of spiritual arrogance. You see, we live in a day that says if someone is, is teaching the scriptures, those people, those who believe the Bible, those who teach the Bible, how arrogant can you be to say that they know the way? 
right? Isn't that our culture would define bigotry as someone who believes that they know the way. But I would submit to you that the greatest act of humility that a believer can engage in and the greatest act of humility that a pastor can engage in is to say, as a matter of fact, it's not my opinions that are driving the ship. We are going to submit ourselves to an authority that has come from outside of us. See, that would be the humble way to go. Consider the pride of coming to the Scriptures and receiving them as a deposit of revelation from God and saying, you know, as a pastor, I think I know better. My people need something else. My people need this book to be edited, supplemented, subtracted from, explained away. It's my job to figure out a clever way to do that in such a way that is palatable in the 21st century. That is spiritual pride. That is the real arrogance, to presume upon the, uh, the Word of God, to assume that we know better than it. Friends, I say this to you because uh, although I hope this day is years and years away, one day I will no longer be the pastor here and you and a, or a smaller group of you will be tasked with the job of uh, of identifying another pastor and I hope that the uh, premier thing in your mind is will the pastor present to us the ideas of man or will the pastor present to us the revelation of God? That being word focused as the inside of our bulletin says will not just be a catchphrase but it will be our lifeblood. That we have no wisdom to offer this world. That I have no novel words to give to you that will somehow help you. I have simply, we have as a church, simply the Word of God. And it is able to set the course and to do the work. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing and that by the Word of God. Secondly, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick Tempered. It must not be quick tempered. I think this is, of course, uh, an, an outflow of one of the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians, where uh, one of the fruit of the Spirit says self controlled. And indeed, Titus lists that in verse 8 self controlled, someone who is actually in control of their passions and their emotions. John Trapp, the Puritan commentator, uh, put it this way. Someone who is quick-tempered is easily blown up into rage. And it's a rage that will not be laid down without revenge. That this, the only way that this person knows how to put the fire of their emotions out is by getting back at someone. It's the only way that the fire can be extinguished. Robert Yarborough, the commentator that I'm reading for Titus, he has pointed out, that Paul is encouraging Titus in this way because Titus is about to go into a church where there will be a lot of things that will make Titus angry. And some of the things that are going to make Titus angry, he ought to be angry about. 
because God is angry about them, because there are people who have, who have gotten into the church who are teaching false doctrine and leading people astray. And what Paul is encouraging Titus to do is he's saying, you know, Jesus is the only one who has ever handled righteous anger sinlessly, right? We all think that our anger is always righteous, don't we? Or we have this internal sense of justice. You turn on the nightly news and or you open your phone to social media and you see horrific things that have happened, things that people have, have done to other people or, or things that people have allowed to be done to children and you begin to get angry. And friends, that is right. God has implanted into us, a, a, in, the, in the imprint of his image on us, we have a sense of right and wrong. We have a sense of justice. And when we see wrong, that sense of justice gets aroused. But the reality is, is that in Titus, there are false teachers who are dividing the church. And Paul knows Titus. Paul says, Titus, I know that you love the church so much. You love Jesus' bride so much you can't stand to see her abused. But it's going to happen and you need to prepare yourself that you don't allow your anger when you see other people mistreating Jesus' bride. Don't allow your anger to wander into a kind of sinful anger. James reminds us. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The funny thing is we always think it will, don't we? We think if I just get angry enough, I'll get something done. We think our anger has an ability to produce something. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but many times in our customer service oriented culture... Uh, sometimes the person who is angry enough, the, the person who yells enough and sends the plate back to the chef or the person who gets on social media and, and tweets at a large corporation will, will be the one who gets the refund, right? I mean, you can get a lot done in our culture by getting angry enough. People will, will, will want to pacify you, and many times anger is used as a, as a manipulation tool. If I just get angry enough, then maybe people will, will lay down and do what I want them to to do. But what we see from the Bible is that being quick-tempered is a window into pride. The more a person thinks of themselves, the easier they get angry. You see, you see the connection between those two? If you find that you are a person who gets angry easily, don't treat the symptom of anger. That's just mowing the grass. You mow the grass, you cut it down to a respectable length, and then it'll grow back next week in the summertime. If you try to attack, your, your, if you see in yourself a, a quick-temperedness, don't attack quick-temperedness, attack pride. Pride is at the root of that quick-temperedness. Pride says, how dare you do this to me? How dare you inconvenience me? How dare you think of me in that way or speak of me in that way, I must get revenge. John Trapp says it won't be settled into without revenge. Quick-temperedness is just the symptom of the bubbling in our soul of, of the pride that is there. He goes on and gives a third um, qualification. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. A drunkard is, of course, it relates to the uh, excessive use of alcohol, but there's something even deeper going on here. To be a drunkard, at least the way that the Bible speaks about it, is to be a slave to some kind of lust or appetite. 
to be given over to something, whether it is food or money or status or different kinds of lust, certainly lust of the sexual type. John Trapp says he must not be a slave to his appetite, but one that can master himself and give laws to his lusts. Uh, For an elder, this is particularly dangerous. Imagine someone who doesn't have control over their desire for status. They would use the church as a platform to gain something. Imagine an elder or a pastor who is given over to the love of money. That pastor might be tempted to listen to someone because of their ability to do something for the church more than they listen to someone else who can't do as much for the church. Imagine a pastor or, or you know, a leader of the church who is given over to the love of food in such a way that it ruins his witness or given over to lust even of the sexual type, certainly bringing a black eye to the name of Christ. Ephesians 5 says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, there is something that we should be filled with instead of these other appetites. And I would say this, uh, if this is just an application, as an aside, uh, it wasn't long ago someone asked me, you know, Brother Greg, what, what do, why do people fast? What is the biblical teaching on fasting? The reason that you might go into a season of fasting is not to twist God's arm so that he'll do something for you that you want him to do because, God, look at how hungry I'm making myself. It's like a a food strike or something like that against God. That's not at all what it is. Instead, what we are saying when we fast is, Lord, I want to remind myself that you are the only thing that I need. And so for a period of time, I'm going to go without food. I'm going to go without something else. This can be a useful way to train ourselves to be captive only to one Lord. Captivity to appetites. Captivity to lusts. It deprives us of this closeness with God. And sometimes we need to take radical measures in order to realign ourselves with Him. There are a couple of other qualifications here under the negative category. I'm just going to mention in passing because honestly they have been in, in, a, in a way treated partly already. There are these last two. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, a drunkard, and here are the last two. He must not be violent or greedy for gain. Of course, these have been treated in kind under the category of drunkard and quick-tempered. Violence is just the physical outworking of what is bubbling over in the heart. Uh, the, the word from the Greek means pugnacious. That's not a word we use often. It just means ready to fight at any moment. right? Ready for a fight. Ready to throw hands at the drop of a hat. A bully. Someone who manipulates to get their way violent. And then greedy for gain. I love how the King James Version puts it in language that we certainly don't use very often. Not given to filthy lucre. Not given over to the love of money, in other 
words. And then he, Paul pivots into these positive qualifications. If, if the negative qualifications are the things that we're seeking to run away from, then the positive qualifications are the things that we're seeking to run toward. Now, why would Paul do this? Why would he give us these lists in this way? I think there's a rationale here from the study that I've done, and it seems like this might be the case. There are certain inward-facing things that would be detrimental to the health of the church. I mean, imagine how unhealthy in a church it would be if, if someone really had a spiritual need and, and had a, a, um, uh, you know, so, so, something that they needed to bring up and, and they, they went to the pastor, but they found the pastor to be quick-tempered. That person would not be able to, to find that they, that they can take their concerns to this person. So there's this inward facing for the health of the church. He must not be violent. He must not be a, a drunkard. That would be a poor example. He must not be arrogant or, or quick-tempered or greedy for gain. But then there are these outward-facing qualifications, these things that if we don't do them, they would make us look very, very foolish in front of the culture around us. The culture would look at us and say, that gospel doesn't change anybody. He must be these things. Verse 8, hospitable, hospitable. What does that mean? Rosaria Butterfield um, has written a book that I would commend to you. It's called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It refers, hospitality refers to the, the Christian's willingness to inconvenience himself or herself. Willingness to be inconvenienced so that their brother or sister's needs can be met. That's what hospitality is. You see, and, and here's how it, it's not just another good little, you know, star to put on our chart, hospitality. It is instead the evidence that we've been changed by the gospel because we remember the kind of hospitality that God showed us in the gospel. We didn't deserve to be invited into his home, did we? We didn't deserve to become a part of his family, to be adopted into the people of God, and yet he invited us to his table. He invited us to be adopted into his very family. And so we, as believers who have been changed by this great eternal hospitality, desire to be hospitable to others, to say to other people, God has so accepted me into his family and into his household, I want to inconvenience myself to accept you into my world. And to meet your needs as God met my needs in Christ. Do nothing, Philippians 2 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He goes on. He must be not only hospitable, verse 8, but a lover of good. What does it mean to be a lover of good? Well, that just seems like that's got to be Christianity 101, but it's a little deeper than that. The elder, the pastor, and I would say to you, the garden variety Christian should be a person who understands the difference biblically between good and evil and who love the good. We are able to say this is good and this is bad. It means 
that we must be immersed in the Scriptures. Why? Because it's only through the Scriptures that we can have our minds renewed. Romans 12 says this, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, elders, pastors are supposed to be the people that you can go to to get God's perspective on a situation. I'm not saying we always have the answers, but we ought to at least be immersed in the scriptures enough to provide some kind of biblical direction. They should be the people that you can go to and expect not to get the advice of the world. Not to get the advice of just your friends in the echo chamber of people who just want to affirm, whatever you want to do, you do you. As a result, we must be transformed by Christ so that we can love the good and hate the bad. We must be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Generally in charge of oneself, having a general pattern of life that is marked by wisdom and godliness. And then here it comes, the the capstone perhaps of all of these. And it gives us the reason that we want to to do and to be and to strive for everything that has come before in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here's the why. This is why Paul needs Titus and the elders that Titus is trying to raise up on this island of Crete to be qualified. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. In the church, in this church on the island of Crete, there were detractors. Outside the church, there were enemies of the gospel. And the only convincing way that the gospel was going to advance is if those who claim the gospel can show themselves to have been changed by the gospel. Does that make sense? The only way to correct error within and the only way to to be convincing to those who exist outside of these walls and outside of our fellowship is to be changed by the gospel that we proclaim. One of the reformers said this, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. I like that. Friends, as we kind of round third base here in this sermon, I want to... I want to re- recenter our focus a little bit. This passage is challenging to me because it's, it's, it's like preaching a list, right? It's like preaching a list. It's, it's just, I don't know, it feels awkward. I want to take a moment to point us back to the gospel. Because if all we did today was examine a list of do's and don'ts and try to give explanations for each, We might be tempted to think that what we ought to do is just leave here and do better and try harder and white-knuckle this thing, right? That the sum total of Christianity is being a good person. It's just trying to follow a list of do's 
and don'ts. We might fall into one of two temptations. The temptation uh, on, on the left, or just in my mind, the way I envision it, the temptation over on one side is to say, well, since no Christian and no elder is perfect, and none of them are ever going to possibly live up to this list in a perfect way, then clearly the Bible standards don't matter. The temptation to say, what does it matter? What's the use? 2 Timothy 3.5 provides a great corrective to this kind of thinking. Listen to what 2 Timothy says. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, just can't please them, slanderers, saying lies, without self-control, not marked by the fruit of the Spirit, brutal, not loving good, we just talked about how the elder should be a lover of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and then look at this last little clause, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's, he's not talking about just folks out there in the culture. He's talking about church people. He says, in the last days there are going to be people like this existing in your church. They have the appearance of godliness. Maybe they give a lot of money. Maybe they come every time the doors are open, but they deny the power of the gospel by showing that they have not been changed by it. You see that? We should not then conclude that since no one is perfect, nothing matters. We don't conclude that. And likewise, there's a second temptation. Is that somehow the sum total of Christianity or of being a pastor is to be perfect. This is not the case. We must judge ourselves and we must judge one another. It will be burdensome to you and it's burdensome to me if we do not judge ourselves through the lens of the gospel. I spent a lot of time in my own personal history thinking that the spiritual way to deal with my own sin is to just beat myself up about it long enough. And that will show God that I'm sufficiently sorry. But friends, that is just as anti-gospel as the ditch of license. The true humility is not in ignoring the rules and the true humility is not in living, by the, living for the, the, the rules as if they save the true humility is running to the cross with our sin. That, friends, is where freedom is found, at the foot of the cross. Listen to, to 1 John 2. See how the, the gospel is, see, see the power of the gospel here. It's, it's so beautifully captured in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, this is John saying why he's writing his letter. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. It's so that we can increasingly, day by day, be made more like Jesus. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, 
we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. You see how John there is holding the gospel with both hands? He's saying, yes, there is an expectation that we will be changed. There is an expectation that we are not like we were before the gospel. But there's also an expectation that we are going to fail. And when we do fail, Jesus is available to us. Jesus Christ the righteous. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the London doctor who became a pastor and preached until the 1980s to multitudes at the Westminster Chapel, he used to ask a question to folks when he was trying to get a sense of their spiritual condition. He would ask, are you now ready to say that you're a Christian? And he recounts that over the years, whenever he would ask this question, people would often hesitate. And then say something like this, I do not feel that I am good enough. To that, he gives this response. At once, I know that they are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea is still that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. It sounds very modest, but it is a lie of the devil. It is a denial of the faith. You will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of Christian salvation is to say that He is good enough and that I am in Him. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. So friends, today I have good news to offer you, which is simply the summary of the scriptures. And that good news is this. Number one, you don't have to be good enough. Jesus will accept you today just the way that you are. If you believe that he paid for your sins, if you confess your sins to him, if you confess him as Lord, if you turn away from your sins, he will save you full stop. And secondly, the gospel continues to have power after the moment of salvation. It brings with it power to change. In other words, all who are saved experience this transformation that is slow and rugged and, and it's not linear. It, it has hills and valleys. But we can expect to have fruit produced in our lives. We can expect to be free from the chains that we used to be enslaved to. We can expect not to talk like we used to. We can expect to less and less gossip like we used to. We can expect to less and less be quick-tempered like we used to be because the same gospel that accepted us just as we are does not intend to leave us in that condition. It intends to change us. And so friends, I would ask you, have you been saved? Will you be saved? And right now, in your day-to-day -day life, are you experiencing the power of the gospel that is presently saving you from your sins, little by little, imperfectly, asymmetrically, non-linearly, up and down, but headed in the right direction? This is the hope that we can have from the gospel. We don't have to be good enough to be accepted by Jesus, but we can expect him to change us once we are saved. Let's pray together.
God, we thank you so much for a gospel that we can hold in both hands. The gospel that says, at the same time, there is nothing in me that qualifies me before you. But it says, out of the same sentence and from the same breath, it says, even though I can never be qualified in myself, I can expect to be qualified by Jesus. I can expect to be changed and transformed little by little for the rest of my life. Lord, I pray that we are a church who not only has experienced this, but that we increasingly and imperfectly and the more that we follow you can expect to experience transformation. I pray that you would work your gospel work in our hearts, that not only would we be able to say, I have been saved in the past, and one day when I go to heaven, I will be saved in the future, but right now, I'm experiencing the grace of God working himself out in my life. I pray, Lord, that you would give us that kind of gospel power in our midst. Lord, I pray that as we consider who our one might be, a person that we'll commit in the year 2023 to pray for, to build a relationship with, to, to invite to church and to share the gospel with. I pray that you would give us boldness and power. I pray that you would give us diligence to, to pray through who this person might be and then to commit to them to pray for them and to have a gospel conversation with them. I pray for those who are taking up the challenge to read the New Testament through to find a place of service in our church, to follow you in the next step of obedience. I pray that today, uh, if there is a way that they might publicly do that, that they would. Lord, we ask you to do your work among us, that we would be fueled by a deep and abiding love for and understanding of the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you would do your work, not for our glory, but for yours. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.